Hey, y'all. Welcome to RUF. My name is Will Nettleton. I am the RUF campus minister here at Trinity. Really glad that you are here, particularly if this is if this semester you're new to RUF, if this is maybe your first couple times being with us. Thanks for being here. I know it's late on a Monday. Always glad that y'all make time uh, to be with us. If you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we are continuing our study in the Ten Commandments. And you may be doing a little bit of theological math right now. I thought the Ten Commandments were in the Old Testament. Is it Matthew in the New Testament? Yes, you are crushing this Bible quiz show. We are going to do a little bit more context tonight. So last week we started uh, our study in the Ten Commandments. That we're going to be doing this entire semester together by looking at the prologue. Uh, there's a little bit of an introduction that God has for Israel before he gives them the Ten Commandments. And last week we learned particularly why the Ten Commandments are relevant. Why should we be looking at them at all? Why should we be paying attention to them? And they're relevant, we learned, because the God who gives them is the maker of the universe, the one who is giving us a guide on how we're made to live. Uh, They're also relevant because the context in which they're given. Uh, Common misconception about the Ten Commandments, or just God's commands in general, is that God gives them as kind of this checklist. You do these things, you get to go to the good place when you die. But the context showed us last week, the prologue showed us, that actually... That was not why they were given to Israel. Israel had actually already been saved. Uh, God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out of that uh, by Moses and many great signs and wonders. And at this point, he's already saved them and he's giving them this law to help them know how to live. Uh, So obeying the Ten Commandments is not a way to be saved. It's a way to respond to being saved. And then lastly, we learned the Ten Commandments uh, were given to Israel as a way to help them stay free and not go back into slavery. That this is the life that they were made to live. uh, That God had designed them for exactly this kind of life. So that's what we looked at last week, and that may have raised uh, some questions for you. Okay, uh, that's great for Israel. Um, What does that have to do with us? Uh, And so tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Ten Commandments and God's law and the New Testament and Jesus. Uh, How does this relate to Jesus and all of the stuff the New Testament has to say about the law. You may have noticed on the back of your handout there's a lot of other passages on there besides the one that we're about to read here in a second, and that's just a small sampling of what all the Bible has to say about the law uh, and many different things. Uh, We're going to get into that in just a second. So how do we put this together? How do we make sense of it, of what we're supposed to do with the Ten Commandments, when it can feel like um, the Bible has different things to say uh, about God's law depending on which section you're in? So that's our project for tonight. We're going to turn our attention to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read a few verses that relate uh, Jesus' thoughts on the law, and then we're going to spend some time trying to connect all the dots. And so for those of you who really like outlines or three points tonight, we're going to look at the law and God's character, the law and Jesus' life, and the law and our lives. The law and God's character, the law and Jesus' life, and the law and our lives. Okay, so we're going to look at this passage of Matthew. Before we do that, As we always do, let me pray, and we'll ask God to join us by His Spirit, uh, and then we'll read His Word. Our great God and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You for gathering us here. Uh, You have told us that Your Word uh, does not return to You void or empty. It always accomplishes the purpose that You have for it. And so that's a promise, God, and we claim that for ourselves. We ask that whatever Your purpose is for this Word tonight, that that would be uh, accomplished among us. Jesus, you told us that you are our good shepherd and that we are your sheep and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray that you would help us to know it 
uh, tonight. Would you help us to hear it and to obey it and to follow you? Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 16. We'll go down to verse 20. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. Okay, I was trying to think of a good example of this to start us out, and I just like could not come up with anything. But I'm sure I'm going to describe what I'm thinking of, and you're going to be able to think of something immediately that should have come to me. Things about which you hear constantly conflicting advice. You know what I mean? Like you hear some people say it's this way, and then immediately other people, usually on the internet, have very strong opinions in the other direction, right? The most toxic version of this that I could think of that does not relate to y'all at all is should you vaccinate your children or not? Never ask that question on Facebook. It is an explosive situation, right? Um, We kind of know that one. Never mind. Anyway, (laughs) these things, right, that people have very strong opinions about. Should you do this thing or should you not do this thing? Um, should you do keto, right? Should you do low carb? But, and you have people who are like, yes, this is great. It was the best thing for me. And you have other people that are like, no, you'll die. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> there are things that are just confusing, right? It's hard to know who to believe on those controversial types of issues. And I feel like the law, how we're supposed to relate to it, uh, and what the Bible has to say about it can be one of those just issues, What is it that we're supposed to do with all of this Old Testament stuff? That might be an easier way of phrasing the question. We're always kind of talking about that in RUF. Uh, And so for our study this semester, maybe even more appropriately, is the law and the Ten Commandments still binding for us? Do these commandments still have moral relevance for us today? As Christians living in the New Testament era, after Jesus has come, the Messiah has come and lived the perfect life and all the good things that Jesus did, Is this still relevant? And what I want to argue with you tonight is that, yes, the Ten Commandments are still relevant for you and for me and for everyone who lives because they are connected to the character of God. Uh, Jesus hints at in this passage, he tells us here that until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot of the law is going to pass away. So Jesus says he didn't come to wipe all that out. He didn't come to wipe away the Ten Commandments. So what is it about the law that makes it so enduring? And I think part of the answer to that question is the connection between the law and the lawgiver. The connection between the law and the lawgiver. Rules always reveal something about the person who is making them. Um, Think about this. An illustration that might help uh, is with disability law. Think about all the federal regulations that govern access to public buildings for people with disabilities. What do those laws tell us about the kind of society that we are trying to be, the kind of society that made these laws. And I think at least a generous interpretation is that they tell us that Americans are striving to include everybody in the ordinary events of life, 
And so we don't want people who have disabilities to not be able to ex access the same things, the same buildings, the same places and public venues that the rest of us are able to access. So you see the illustration, right? We're able to learn something about the people and the society that makes these laws uh, from the laws themselves. Those laws reveal something about our character. Uh, in the same way, actually, an interesting side note, the laws that we don't have reveal things about our character as well, right? Um, side, side point. Anyway, the Ten Commandments also reveal something about the God who gives them. What do these laws tell us about the God who gives them? Uh, we don't have time to go through each of the Ten Commandments. I wish we did, but I'm just going to pick out a couple here as examples to, uh, to kind of get your minds going about it. So let's think about the Sixth Commandment. You shall not kill. You shall not take innocent life. It reminds us that God is the Lord and giver of life. He forbids the taking of innocent life because he is a life-giving God. He goes against it. Death is, is not a part of his original uh, scheme. Or the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, tells us that God is a God of purity and faithfulness. He expects covenants to be kept. When you make promises, you're supposed to keep them because that's the kind of God that God is, a promise-keeping God. Or the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. God is reminding us that he is our creator and our provider. Everything ultimately belongs to him, so we don't have the right to take what he has given to someone else. Um, we are supposed to trust him to provide for us, not take matters into our own hands. We could go on, but you get the point, right? Uh, perhaps the most important thing that the Ten Commandments reveal about God is that he is a God of love. Uh, where am I getting that? <laughs> right? As you read the Ten Commandments, you may think, that is not my conclusion about what I got from those things. Actually, when Jesus summarizes God's law in Matthew 22, uh, verses 37 and 38, I put this on your handout, he, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in another place, Jesus will say, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is doing in that, those couple of sentences is summarizing the Ten Commandments. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. He reduces all ten down to those two. That's a great way to summarize what the law of God is. Love him and love other people. These commandments are all about love, which tells us about the God who made them. He is all about love. We love God by worshiping Him and using His name properly. Uh, we love our parents by honoring them, the fifth commandment tells us. We love our spouses by being faithful to them. We love our neighbors by protecting their lives, by respecting their property, telling them the truth. These commandments are about love, which means that the God who gave them is a God of love. He wants us to love Him, and He wants us to share His love with other people. Okay, so the law is connected to the character of God which I think bears on our question tonight, is the law still relevant for us? Uh, why would we say that the law is still relevant? Because the law expresses some of these qualities about God that are eternal, right? God is an eternally loving God. He has always been loving. There are many others that it tells us about him, that he is pure, that he is faithful, that he's truthful, that he's just. The, this is who God is. It's who he's always been. It's who he always will be. He would have to un-God himself to set aside these qualities. Which means it makes sense that the law which expresses those same eternal attributes would also itself be eternally valid. Inasmuch as they share that character, inasmuch as they are loving and faithful and true, they would also be valid eternally. 
maybe we can phrase it this way. When will it ever be permissible to worship another god? Or to lie? Or to murder? Or to steal? And the point is, never. It's never going to be okay. Because those things are contrary to God's very nature. Uh, the Ten Commandments are God pouring himself out uh, into the law. What he is like and what he is calling us to be like. So the law is still relevant and binding for us, at least in part, because it's connected to God's character. As long as he is God, this will be his law. But we haven't yet dealt with the kind of complicating factor that I introduced at the beginning. Okay, so what about all the times in the New Testament that talk about the law and seem to make it sound like it has passed away? Uh, seems to set it aside. Romans 6.14 is there in your handout. For sin will have no dominion over you, Paul writes, because you're not under the law, but under grace. Something has changed since Jesus has come. In Galatians 3, 24 and 25, Paul says that the law used to be our guardian until Christ came uh, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under that guardian. Right? It's like we had a, a tutor for a while that we no longer need because we have Jesus. So how do we make sense of those, especially in light of what Jesus said, that the law is never going to pass away? These things don't seem to fit together. Okay, here's the short version. I'm going to do a little, I'm going to do a little teachy here for just a second, and if this piques your interest, we can talk about it, book a time on my calendar. I'm always happy uh, to grab coffee. If you don't know this, you can go to Instagram bio, click the link. You can get a time on my schedule anytime. Always glad to meet with you uh, and do that. If this does not pique your interest and you want to talk about something else, the Super Bowl is coming. I don't know. We'll figure out something, some other thing to talk about, but we'd love to meet with you either way. Okay, so why does the Bible seem to talk about different kinds of law? I think the reason that the New Testament talks about the law in several different ways is because there are several different types, categories of laws described in the Bible. Thomas Aquinas, you remember that name? Theologian from many hundreds of years ago now. He broke this down into three categories that most Christian theologians have held on to ever since. Uh, there are three categories of law in Scripture. There's the moral law. There's the civil law, and there's the ceremonial law. Moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. The moral law is what we're talking about this semester, the Ten Commandments, uh, the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God and others. These kind of abiding, big, moral things that everybody everywhere is supposed to obey. The second was the civil law. These are the laws that governed Israel as a nation under God. These consisted of guidelines for waging war, restrictions on land use, regulations for debt, all kind of stuff that you read in the Old Testament that you're like, are we supposed to do that? Um, not necessarily, because many of those were just for the nation of Israel during the time in which uh, they were a theocracy. There's one other category of law, the ceremonial law. These were the regulations for religious feasts and the worship of God in the temple. Basically the entire book of Leviticus. Any sacrificial law, right? Anything that starts listing out goats and birds of various kinds would be the ceremonial law. And so the question we may have is, what do we do with those three types of law? The New Testament is really clear that the ceremonial law has been done away with by the coming of Jesus. Colossians 2.17 tells us that those ceremonies were the shadow of things to come. They pointed forward to something, but that something was Jesus, an ultimate sacrifice. So that Jesus has come. The most obvious example here would be all of the sacrificial system. Why don't we still make sacrifices of bulls and goats like they're prescribed in Leviticus? Um, number one is gross. No, that's not number one. That's maybe number five. We don't do it anymore because Jesus provided a once-for-all sacrifice. 
So those sacrifices are unnecessary. He has atoned for sin. No further sacrifice is needed. This is kind of what the book of Hebrews uh, really gets into and is all about. So the ceremonial law uh, has been abrogated, is the technical term for this, with Jesus' coming. That one's been taken care of. Uh, the civil law has also expired because the New Testament tells us that God's people is no longer isolated to just one nation. It's no longer just Israel. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ's, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All Paul is saying there is that the whole deal with Israel has now been expanded to everybody, to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so now we can all claim to be children of Abraham uh, because we have believed in Jesus by faith, even if we weren't by birth before. And so because Jesus died on the cross, we don't need the ceremonial law anymore, that sacrifice. And because God's kingdom is now spreading to all people after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we don't need the civil laws that he gave to Israel when they were in a specific time as a specific nation state many thousands of years ago. So this kind of, just as a side note, this is kind of like our answer to that question of every now and then people will read stuff in the Old Testament and they'll be like, um, this says you can't have a shirt that has different kinds of fabric, so you guys are hypocrites. Like, why do you not obey that? This is kind of why, right? This is why we ignore some of the stuff about shellfish and all of that. Got follow-up questions? Come see me. Glad to talk about that uh, anytime. But because Jesus has come, those things have passed away. Um, we don't need those civil laws. We're people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so that takes care of the civil and the ceremonial. There's one category you may have noticed that we haven't touched yet, which is the moral law. What does the New Testament say about the moral law? I think what the New Testament is trying to convey about that moral law is that we can never be justified by keeping it. Uh, the law cannot save us. That's the New Testament's primary concern, is that many people try to use it uh, as boxes to check. And so when it is saying we are no longer under the law, or the law has passed in some sense, it's saying you can't use that to get saved. You can't use that to get right with God because you can't keep it. You can't obey it. And of course, we talked about last week, that's actually not why God gave it anyway, right? God gave it, to, he didn't give it to Israel uh, so that he would save them. He had already saved them. He gave it to them to tell them how to live now as people who had been delivered. Don't go back into slavery. That's what we were saying last week. So our salvation has never depended on our ability to keep the law. The Bible is really clear that we cannot keep it. Right? Romans 3.20 talks about this. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Um, we can't keep the rules. But the New Testament hammers that there is no salvation through the law. It keeps going after that anyway because we just can't help trying. We always go back to trying to make it about a list of things that you do. If you do these things, then you'll be okay. Do any of you guys watch The Crown, the Netflix show? Uh, a couple of you. I saw like two hands. Okay. So this is just an old people show. I know that now. Now I know. Um, the Crown is about a young Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and there's a scene early on where she's getting advice from her grandmother, Queen Mary. And essentially there's a political situation where Elizabeth is getting pressure um, to act to try and get Winston Churchill to step down. And Mary's advice, her grandmother's advice to Queen Elizabeth is stay out of that. Don't get involved in that. And Elizabeth asks her this really pointed question. She says, basically, so I'm the queen, and yet my job is to do nothing. 
And her grandmother, Mary, replies, to do nothing is the hardest job of all. To do nothing is the hardest job of all. And when it comes to our salvation, I think that's exactly right. The idea that we do nothing to contribute to it. The idea that it is a free gift of God's grace that you cannot earn by your works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. That is hard. Because for us, we're like, I mean, it feels like you kind of should have to do something. It feels like there should be something. I meet God halfway or whatever. And the Bible is clear over and over again, not how it works. Because you got nothing to bring. No matter how low we set the bar, you wouldn't clear it. That's the story of all the Old Testament, right? You read those stories and you're like, these people suck. And that's also the Bible's point. It's not be like these people. It's like these people suck. Also, we suck. That's what it gets at all the way through. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. I mean, that may not, that may get deleted out of the recorded version of this. <laughs> that's the Bible's point. We are not good people. Uh, we can't contribute anything. You, ever, you remember being a kid and your mom, or maybe you've got little brothers and sisters or cousins or something, and uh, my niece is this way. She's six now. And whenever we're doing something like cooking dinner, she really wants to help. I don't know if you've ever been helped by a six-year-old with dinner, but it is not help. It is the opposite of that. It is a nightmare, right? Moms are always like, if they're patient, maybe they're like, okay, fine, it's mac and cheese, you can help. But if, if not, if they don't have time for that, they just say what? No, you're going to make a mess of this. You're not helping me. And the New Testament is looking at us every time we try to make salvation about rule-keeping and saying, no, you're making a mess. Stop doing that. You can't help. But the New Testament does not declare an end to God's moral law as the standard for our lives. Um, that's often kind of the conclusion when we talk this way about God's grace, so free, so rich, so infinite, His grace. It's kind of like, that kind of sounds like a blank check. And the New Testament's point, Paul's point in Romans 6 actually is, yeah, it is. Imagine a God like that, where you could do nothing, and he would still give you a blank check. Wouldn't you want to follow a God like that? Which is where the law comes back in. Okay, before we get to that, this leaves us in a bit of a situation. Uh, so we can't keep the law, we know that, uh, but it's still a standard for us. They're still, uh, we're still supposed to keep it in some sense, even though we can't. So what do we do? And this is where we have to talk about what Jesus said in the passage that we started with. Jesus, the law in Jesus' life. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Uh, I think in the first place, Jesus fulfills the law by keeping it on our behalf. Romans 8 is also in your handout there. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's talking about us. God has done what we could not do, what the law could not do through us because our flesh was so weak. By sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus became like one of us in sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That Jesus came in the flesh to fulfill the law to keep it on our behalf. The law can't save us because we're too weak to keep it in our flesh. But Jesus comes and takes it on and fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for us. So, Jesus keeps the law for us. He checks all the boxes that we can't check. And he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our breaking the law. This is what theologians have called the great exchange. 
This idea that we contribute nothing but our sin and our brokenness. All we deserve is the penalty of the law. And Jesus comes and takes that and gives us his righteousness. Those things are exchanged, and that is how salvation works. That's actually how we're able to be right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is really the key passage here. It tells us that God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. He knew no sin. God made him to be sin on the cross in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the exchange. Um, imagine for a second that you want to buy a car, but not only do you not have the money you need in your checking account, you have a crazy amount of overdraft fees on your account. Right, so that we can't even begin to talk about buying that car because you have to deal with all of those fees. Not only do you not have the money you need for that, you actually owe the bank money. And someone comes along and they clear those fees, get you back to zero, and on top of that, they give you enough to buy the car. That is a really lame analogy for what is basically what the scriptures are talking about here. That barely even illustrates what Jesus does. That he pays the penalty for our sin, the debt that we have racked up in our disobedience. And that he gives us his righteousness. He doesn't just get you back to zero so that now you can start keeping the rules and now the meter's running again. And let's see if you can do better this time. He cancels your debt and he gives you everything. He gives you the blank check of his infinite and perfect righteousness as well. So that Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul has spent all of Romans up to that point talking about how much we deserve condemnation for our sin. There's none of that for us because Jesus has cleared our debt and given us all of his righteousness. That is what Jesus, Jesus has done to fulfill the law on your behalf. His life perfectly lived. His death died uh, for your sin. Which brings us lastly to the law in our lives. Now what do we do with it? How are we going to live? As we go forward this semester and talk about these Ten Commandments and everything that they have to say to us, what are we going to do with it? And my encouragement for us is that we're going to do the same thing that the Israelites were supposed to do with it. We're going to try and keep it. Not because we have to, uh, to get God's salvation, but because we get to now. Because in Christ, we're actually now able to do it. That because we are united to him by faith and because his Holy Spirit is at work in us, those of us who have believed in him, God is working a new thing in us so that we are able, not perfectly, but still truly, in some real sense, able to keep this law. We obey not to justify ourselves, but to show our gratitude and love for the Savior who justified us. Same as the Israelites. Weren't, being, weren't obeying to be saved, obeying because they were saved. That's the invitation for us. Obey because we have been saved. And we do it because we love him. It's actually what Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We show Jesus we love him by following his uh, example. I saw a cool story this week about uh, Phil Mickelson, who's a professional golfer. He's one of uh, the more famous golfers, not because he's really good, although he is pretty good, but because he's left-handed. There are not very many left-handed golfers uh, on the PGA Tour. What's interesting is what I actually said is not right. Phil Mickelson is actually not left-handed. He just plays golf left-handed. He's actually right-handed. Can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine playing a, something so well with your non-dominant hand that you are a professional athlete at that thing? Like, how good would he be at golf if he just played right-handed? That's the part that I don't understand. Anyway... 
This is the story that he tells in his memoir about how it happened. His dad is the one who relays the information. He's 18 months old, which is also crazy because Cooper is like three months from there. Cooper, my son is 15 months old. He's not going to be a professional golfer. That's not going <laughs> to I don't think that's... That may have been in the DNA anyway. Anyway, Phil Mickelson, he, when he's 18 months old, would join his dad in the backyard for a little bit of practice time. His dad was a golfer. And so Phil's dad, he would set Phil in front of him, and then he would practice his golf swing. And he would tell Phil to watch him, and Phil would watch. And then Phil would swing. But Phil could only get it by standing directly in front of his dad. And so what happened is that when Phil's dad was swinging with his right hand, the only way that he could figure it out was to mirror it back to him. And so that's how he started swinging with his left hand. And his dad tried to correct him a bunch of times and be like, no, 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 flip around this way. But right when he was about to swing, because of the way he had watched his dad, he would flip back around and he would hit it with the back of the club. And his dad said that he actually hit the ball better with the back of the club left-handed than he did right-handed, which is how you know your son is about to make you bazillions of dollars playing professional <laughs> golf one day. That kid is a wizard, right? Listen, to, this is his father's words. Phil was watching me swing right-handed. He was hitting the way he saw me hit it. And I kept turning him around, and he kept turning back around. Why did he do that? Because Phil couldn't take his eyes off of me. That was his point. Phil could not stop watching me. He wanted to be just like his dad, even at such a young age. He wanted to hit the ball just like his dad did. His desire to be like his dad was so powerful that it overtook his nature. Right? His nature was to swing right-handed. That was his dominant hand. And he wanted to be so much like his father that he started swinging left-handed. In the same way as we abide in Christ Jesus and his word abides in us, as his Holy Spirit works powerfully in us, he overcomes our very nature. So that all of a sudden, this thing that we were not able to do before, to keep the law, to please God, all of a sudden, things start to change in us, and we begin to do it. We begin to keep His law. That becomes our new nature. We become more and more like Jesus. And we are able to love Him by keeping His commandments. So starting next week, we're going to look at how to do that. We're going to start with the first commandment. God says, You'll have, you should have no other gods before me. And that's where we're going to begin. How do we love Jesus and follow him? How do we keep our eyes on him as we keep that commandment? And I hope that you'll come back as we try to learn how to love Jesus together. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. God in heaven, we thank you for this perfect law of love that feels so much like uh, a weight and a restriction to us. And yet as we read your word, God, we find uh, that that is not your intent. Uh, that your intent is like a good father trying to help us live freely, live the way we were supposed to live. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. Would your Holy Spirit be at work in us, uh, making us more and more like Jesus? And would you help us to keep our eyes on him uh, as we seek to love him and keep his commandments? I pray for my friends uh, here who do not know you, God. Thank you for their uh, humility in coming every week, uh, especially the ones who are considering this and wrestling with it and doubting and trying to do that with integrity. God, thank you for uh, letting them be a part of, of our group here. I pray if this stuff is true, God, that you would continue to show that uh, to them. If you were really there, even as I'm talking uh, out into the air now, if you were there, God, would you be at work? And for those of us who do believe, who've placed faith in Jesus, I pray that you would sink this home to us, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers, uh, not because it gets us something, but because we already have everything. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.